Evening, everybody. My mic's on, hey? Yeah, you can hear me. Fantastic. Um, for those of you who don't know me, because there are some visitors in the building, which is fantastic, and it's great to be together. Um, my name's Kyle. Um, there's a couple of kids running around tonight. Um, the one literally who brought my Star Wars video game. If you see a guy with a Star Wars video game, that is my son, my 18-month-old, who doesn't play the No Under 16 <laughs> video game, just so you know. Um, and my wife, Michelle, is, uh, she's in there now with the other, the other moms and kids. But um, it's so good to have everyone here and be together. Um, and so thanks for, for coming out and, and gathering together as a family with God's people. It is so good. And it's so great to have God speaking, bringing encouragements and words from people. And it was great to have um, cursed on drums for the first time. Like, how much does that add to things? So let's just, very excited. Um, so I am continuing tonight uh, our journey through the book of Exodus, and it's week three. I know there's maybe a bunch of you who uh, have not been around for the last two weeks. Maybe you were on the long weekend, you were camping somewhere. Uh, perhaps you're just joining us for the first time tonight, um, and you are welcome to be here. And let me just say, if you are someone who is a Christ follower, you're visiting, I trust that this will be um, just deepening of your faith. If you're not a Christ follower, you're exploring, you're exploring Jesus' faith, spirituality. I do think this is a great night. Um, let me say this up front. Um, I guarantee you, I, I hope I can live up to the guarantee, that you won't be bored. <laughs> By the end, you may be a few things. You may be outraged, you may be terrified, you may be intrigued and mystified. Um, I, I hope my goal, cards on the table, would be that you are actually like, oh my gosh, I want to turn my life over to Jesus. I've never considered him before properly, and if this is who he is, I need him. Um, that's, that's what I hope um, would be the, the result for you, but you won't be bored after we've gotten through um, the first nine of the ten plagues uh, that happen upon the people of Egypt. So the story so far, let's, let's recap. I've got a picture here. Um, it is a, I said the photograph initially this morning. It's not a photograph. Um, it is a rendering of Egypt in about the 13th century BC, which is roughly when uh, the Exodus story that we're in took place. And what's happening so far is that the people of Israel, the Hebrews, have been in captivity under Egyptian oppression for about 400 years at this point in the story. They've grown to basically a nation within a nation of about 2 million people. So this is not like a marginal uh, people group, even though they are a minority in a sense in this nation. And um, their conditions have actually gotten worse recently because um, they've been recently told to, to have the same output of bricks that they're normally building to contribute to all the Egyptian architecture, but now they're not going to be given straw by the Egyptians to make the bricks. I didn't know what the significance of straw was. Straw basically reinforces bricks much like steel reinforces concrete today. And so they would have had to go out in their own time, their own energy, their own extra hard labor, get the straw, and then add that to the bricks and produce, I think, even more uh, bricks than they actually are. And so basically, it's more hours under the Egyptian whips, terrible rations, and basically just a massively hopeless situation. That's where the people of Israel are finding themselves right now. But throughout all of this, God's been at work, and He has been working a plan to redeem them from slavery, get them out of bondage, and liberate them from their Egyptian oppressors. And what He's done is He's chosen Moses, one of His people, one of the, the Israelites, um, and He's raised him up to be a deliverer. Now, Moses actually had spent the first 40 years of his life actually growing up as an Egyptian prince in the courts, but now he's the one who's going to be the instrument to free the Hebrews from slavery. And last week, Moses had gone out and encountered God at the burning bush. If you were here, you remember that. And God revealed himself by his name, which is, I am who I am. 
I am that I am. He shortens it to I am, which basically is the Hebrew word Yahweh, Yahweh. And if you read your Old Testament, if you turn to it now, if you have an English Old Testament, um, you will probably find throughout the Old Testament, all over the show, even in today's passage, you'll see the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And when you see the Lord capitalized, L-O-R-D, all in capitals, that is the rendering of actually God's name, Yahweh. Um, and tonight, I'm, to be honest, going to try use the word the name Yahweh as much as possible, um, because I think, to be honest, in our day and age, the word God, those three letters, G-O-D, and even the word Lord, have been filled with so much other stuff other than the God who is Yahweh, who has revealed himself as Yahweh. We've all got so many perspectives when we talk about God, a God out there. So I'm going to talk about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And basically, last week, after revealing himself to Moses, um, he sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to confront him, to say to them um, the big words that everyone will know as part of Exodus, let my people go. And that moment is actually the thing that made things worse for the Israelites. It's that moment that, that, that really ticked off Pharaoh and brought that edict to, do the, to make bricks without straw. And so now what you've got is tensions mounting all around, okay? There's pockets of hope, obviously, that Yahweh's on the move. Stuff is happening. He's been raising up a deliverer. But at the same time, there's plenty of naysayers who are actually blaming Moses for now making the situation worse. So that's where we find ourselves. <clears throat> and we ended last week with Moses and Aaron going in to confront Pharaoh again. And to do a miraculous sign was what God asked them to do. And so Aaron took his staff, he threw it onto the ground, and it became a, a snake, quite a, a symbolic figure in many ways. So Pharaoh called out his magicians. They got out their staffs, threw them on the ground. They became snakes. And then Aaron's staff snake ate up their staff snakes. And we had this contest of powers with one clearly being stronger than the other. And now today, that confrontation is going to continue. That's where we are in the story, um, as God is now going to bring down 10 plagues against the Egyptian oppressors in order to get Pharaoh and Egypt to let his people go out of slavery. And so as Steph said, I am going to try and sum up four chapters of Exodus, Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10. I do encourage you this week, if you haven't read it in the preceding week, go ahead and read the plagues this week. It'll be helpful. We're going to cover the first nine out of, out of the 10. So the 10th one is kind of unique. It's a little special. And so um, that's going to be covered next week by Leanne Morn, who's going to be here preaching, which will be great. So we're going to leave that for then. But for now, let's just read the first plague. That's all I'll read tonight from Exodus 7. Just to give us a taste, just to give us a flavor of legitimately what were the experiences on the ground? What did people see? What did people smell? What was it like? And it's, it's quite um, stark imagery. So here we go, Exodus 7, 14 to 21, I'm going to read. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into the serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. 
and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So that is the first plague, part of God's word to us tonight. And as we saw there, a very stark, very hectic story. Um, so that's just to give us a taste. We are going to try and cover from a higher level all the plagues. And so we're going to look at them under basically three headings, three sort of threads that are found throughout all the plagues, the first nine at least anyway. Um, the knowledge of Yahweh, we'll look at the judgment of Yahweh, the mercy of Yahweh, and then the servant of Yahweh. And so let's dive in with the first one, the knowledge of Yahweh. One of God's chief purposes um, in, in all that he does is to make himself known, is to make himself known. And I want to put to you right up front, that's a good thing. If you are the, the, the greatest being in the world, the most awe-inspiring, majestic being that, that has all power and all majesty, and you create human beings and other spiritual beings to, to know you, to work with you, to partner with you, to do a bunch of stuff and to enjoy you and experience and have their souls filled with awe, I would say that is a fantastic, brilliant, good, beautiful thing. And that's who God is and that's what he does. And now in our story, where we are in the story of Egypt and the story of the world, um, after all the plagues that are gonna come, no one's gonna question who this God is, who Yahweh is, and just how large and in charge he really is. And so he's gonna be making himself known through the plagues. And that's what he says a couple of times. In Exodus 7, 5, here's a couple of examples. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I'll strike the water that's in the Nile. A little later, one of the other plagues in Exodus 9. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earths. God's self-disclosure of his uniqueness, his holiness. And making himself known is behind all of God's acts. From creation to the coming of Christ to the new creation when he ushers in a new world, ultimately. Um, he's making himself known. He's made himself known through, through creation. You can look at creation and, and get a glimpse of who he is through his acts of judgment and mercy throughout human history, uh, through his apostles and prophets, through the coming of Jesus, Yahweh himself coming in human form, and then the written words of scripture that we have. All of these is God saying, I have made myself known if you, if you can glimpse this, you do not have excuse. I am revealing myself. And this means that God is not a generic God that you can just make up. You can't just take the word G-O-D and fill it with whatever your imagination wants to. And the truth is what culture says or thinks or what you think or feel about who God is at the end of the day ultimately counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. Because either you are describing and worshiping and talking about a complete figment of your imagination that may have some elements of truth here, but it's, it's not Yahweh, or possibly scary and worse still, you might be worshiping and talking about and conversing with a very real spiritual being, again, that is not Yahweh, and that may be even worse, and we'll chat about that just now as we go. 
So God is making himself known. That's what he's doing in the plague, which leads us on to the next thing, which is the plagues themselves, the judgment of Yahweh. That's what he's doing here. He's bringing his judgment. And the nine plagues, so there's 10 altogether. The first nine come in three cycles of three. Um, and we can go into more detail there. We won't. But here are the three cycles. Cycle one, um, the Nile is turned to blood. That is followed up by a, uh, a plague of frogs and then a plague of gnats, which come out of the ground and take over the whole land. Cycle two comes along. Flies, swarms of flies over everywhere. The Egyptian cattle die, and then boils break out on all the Egyptian people. Lastly, the final cycle. Hail comes from the heavens and decimates a whole bunch of Egypt. Locusts come and decimate the crops. And then darkness is, is, comes over the, the, the face of the land for seven days. The sun is blocked out, whether it's an eclipse or something else. There is no sun. There's no light for seven days. So those are the nine plagues. Um, again, I do encourage you to go read them. Um, there is some, some stark stuff, but hopefully after today's lens, that will be really helpful and insightful to you. The question we need to ask is, if the first point was Yahweh is making himself known and he is judging Egypt here, wh what do we learn about God in these judgments? What is he making known about himself to the people of Egypt? And I would say there's at possibly more, at least three things that I want to highlight here. The first one is that God is sovereign. Yahweh is sovereign. And he's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over creation, as you can see. He is wielding creation to his will and, and the forces of nature. But more specifically, in, in, in this instance, in these plagues, he is showing that he is sovereign over other gods. He's sovereign over other gods. He's displaying that he's the true God of gods, the Lord of lords, over and above Pharaoh and the other pantheon of Egyptian gods. And what's happening here is each specific plague is attacking a specific Egyptian deity. So that's why there are all these different plagues. You might ask, why that and why that? So let's just look at the first one. Um, why the Nile into blood? That's the one we read tonight. Let's just look at that. Um, the Nile. The Nile River, the Nile Delta, was the economic heart of the land of Egypt. I mean, in many ways, it still is today. Um, that, that whole Nile region amongst this huge, vast areas of desert gives that area an amazing fertility so they can have amazing crops, they can water their livestock, and their society can flourish. The Nile is the heart of their economy. And the Nile God that they worshiped to, to provide for them and keep the Nile flowing and keep everything happy and flourishing was Harpy or Happy. I don't know which way to pronounce it. Um, happy sounds funnier, and I'm okay ridiculing uh, Egyptian gods here. So let's go with Happy. He, he's the Nile god, and they would have worshipped him. They would have, they would have dev devoted things to him. They would have had um, th uh, idols of wooden stone. I mean, even in the text we read, blood covers the vessels of wooden stone, and that's talking about uh, very, very literal wooden idols. And by turning the Nile into blood, Happy is literally bleeding out. Their God is literally bleeding out through the waters of Egypt, or metaphorically, maybe not literally. And what God is doing is he is literally attacking and wrecking the power that that God has in providing for the Egyptian people. He is judging not just the Egyptian people, but he's judging their gods and their belief system and their deity. And you might have a question here, which I think is a fair question. Many of us are Westerners in the room or are influenced by the West. And the question would be this. Hey, I need to just ask here, are these, uh, are these real gods, real spiritual beings that, that, that God is coming down on here and, and, and judging and attacking? 
or are they, you know, as we've said, are they, are they just idols, carvings of wooden stone, and in many ways they're myths, they're just fag, um, uh, figments of, of, of the Egyptian imagination and myths that God is just saying they're not real, and so let me show you that they're not real. Which one is it? Um, and in, in, in many ways, it's, it's, it's both. There are these very real things that didn't possess any power that they worshipped, but there are very real spiritual beings behind them. And so the, the, the plot of the Bible is one of the threads going throughout the whole of Scripture is a supernatural spiritual war that's happening behind the scenes. You go ahead to Ephesians 6 in the New Testament. We studied it a few years ago. The ladies would have been in an Ephesians 6 spiritual warfare Bible study earlier in the year. And Paul in there is talking about struggling against heavenly powers. And what he's talking about there is far more than just demons and demon possession, although that is a real thing that we believe in. Um, there are very real spiritual beings that have rebelled against God and are very active, actually, in culture and history and politics and, cult and cultures and belief systems. They're not just, um, those things aren't just human conventions. There is a spiritual reality behind them. And it works its way out in, in two sort of things, I'd say. One, you've got ideologies, which is belief systems that basically, I would say, again, are not ultimately just man-made. There is something um, of the, the dark heart of spirituality that, that manifests in ideas that are not the worldview of the Bible, not in line with the things of the Bible. They are belief systems that are effects of invisible powers. And that means we cannot ignore ideologies in the world around us, whether it's other uh, religious belief systems or just ideas about how the world works and how human beings work. Paul in Colossians 2, he says it like this, see to it that no one takes you, I love this language here, captive, which is exactly what's happening in Egypt here. The people and the Egyptians in many ways especially are captive to these gods. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And Paul goes on to talk about this. He talks about spiritual warfare being against arguments that are brought against the truth of the gospel. And so you've got ideologies on one hand, plus then idols. Idols are created things that, that, that are twisted into uh, stealing worship away from God. And in the Egyptian case, there would have literally been, as I say, carvings of wooden stone that represented gods that they bowed down to and worshipped and venerated. But um, there are other created things. As again, they worshiped the Nile and the sun. They had deities behind that. We worship things today still. Money, sex, power. These are also gods that were in the ancient world that have sort of continued through today. They are good things that are given to us by God to enjoy. But they are very, very, very real spiritual forces that can work behind these things to twist them and to pervert them and to elevate them to appeal to our sinful hearts, to tempt us to go after them in a whole bunch of ways, which God would say, no, you are now devoting yourself to these things. And what happens is that devotion normally comes at the cost of other human beings. That's what's happening in Egypt. They're worshiping all these gods at the cost of the Israelite people. And what happens to all of us when we give ourselves to these things is we become enslaved to them. We become enslaved to money, to sex, to power, whole pantheon of other gods we have, but not just to those things, to the very real spiritual beings that are behind them. And so we have to wake up to this reality. There's not much neutral ground in the world around us, to be honest. There's not much neutral ground. There's a lot 
at play. And so that's what's happening here in Egypt. And when it speaks, as I say, of things of wood and stone, it is referring to the, to the idols, but far more than that. And so God is coming in, and he is smashing their false gods. He is smashing their idols, and he's saying, I am bigger, I am better. Trust me, I am the creator God who has created everything, visible and invisible, and I am the one who truly provides for you, not happy, the Nile God. So let me wreck him so that you know he's not your ultimate provider, I am, and you should be giving allegiance and worship and devotion to me, because I'm the one that feeds you with the Nile. And the truth in our own lives today is that God will come just like he did to the ancient Egyptians there, and he will come and he will pummel the gods in our lives, the things that we have given ultimate allegiance to and put on a pedestal and devoted our time and our energy in sacrifice to, that we have trusted in to, to, to come through for us. He will smash them so that we realize they are weak, that we have sworn far more allegiance to them when we, than we should have, and in many ways we've been captive to them. And God's good enough to do that on our behalf. The judgment of God is... Is, is actually a good thing. It's him wrecking false gods that hurt humanity. And that's what he's doing. So that's probably the biggest one in terms of what, what we see about God in his judgment here. The second one is this, is that he reveals that he is righteous, that he is righteous in what he's doing, in his dealings. Now, to be honest, some of you might have heard just the first plague alone and been like, sheesh, that is hectic. That is hectic. Is that, is that okay? Is that, is that fair? Does that, does that really reveal a great God that, that I, that I want to worship? And I would say to you, um, kind of like I said earlier, uh, many of us here have grown up in the West, um, and that's a, that's a problem for, for that slice of the world. But you go elsewhere in the world, and to be honest, a God who comes and, and delivers pestilence and delivers death and judges people um, is not something that they would be surprised by or put off by. And the truth is, if you've, if you've been influenced by the West, you've grown up in Western soil, for, which has been operating for hundreds of years, which has its foundations in Judeo-Christian values and roots, which says, no, compassion and mercy, these are great things. And so that's probably that thing that's happening in your heart there. The other thing, though, about growing up in Western soil is that we have a huge passion for things like freedom and, and wanting to destroy anything that, that is in, unjust. That, that is the thing that's coming up in your heart as well which is what's happening here. And so, although the one might irritate you and make you feel uncomfortable, something in you should say, I, I get what's happening here. I get what's happening here. And to be honest, in this story, Egypt is not innocent. Egypt is not innocent. Even on a purely human level, they have been enslaving another people group for 400 years in harsh, harsh, harsh slave conditions. Okay? A people group and they've enslaved them based on their ethnicity. Typically today in, in our culture, we can agree that is an evil, bad thing. And so God is judging it. But there's more than that going on. It's the, the worship and devotion of the other gods that God is also judging. And in fact, the worship and devotion of those other gods giving birth to that belief system is, is what is actually allowing them to keep going in what they're doing in oppressing, oppressing the Israelites. And so God is saying, no, evil and wickedness must be dealt with. The hard truth for now, all of us in this room and every person alive today, is that God has declared evil and wickedness is rampant throughout the human race. Every single person in their core is a sinner by nature and choice. They are evil by nature and choice. We are not born innocent. 
I have an 18-year-old. I've seen it firsthand. We are not born innocent. We have spat in God's face. We have rejected Him. This whole world is a testimony to people who have, have turned the other way and ignored the God who created them and loves them and provides for them. And so, we are all under the righteous wrath and damnation of God. And it is righteous. That's his point. He is judging these people because it is right. One theologian said this, and I thought it was quite healthy. He just said something along the lines of, God's judgments in the end will be so absolutely perfect that the damned will agree with the rightness of their damnation. And I think that's true. I think that's biblically substantial. But it doesn't end there, because there's one more thing that you see clearly in this revelation of God in his judgments, and that is his patience. His patience. Okay, His judgments here are gracious warnings to Pharaoh and the Egyptians to turn to him. Every single one, he repeatedly is warning. His wrath and his judgment is mixed with his patience. Every time that Moses speaks to Pharaoh, he comes with a plea. Turn, turn, stop what you're doing, turn to Yahweh. Who knows what actually might have happened in that whole nation. God wasn't necessarily going to continue judging them. If they had, if they had turned their lives to Yahweh, he would, have, he would not have. He would have welcomed them in to his people. But before every plague came a plea. But Pharaoh was stubborn, saw in the text, his heart grew hard, he hardened his own heart. And ultimately, when the judgments gets more hectic and the ultimate judgment arrives, which Lee will touch on next week, there is no surprise and there is no excuse for the devastation that Pharaoh himself personally experiences. And so let me just let that sobering fact um, hit home. And let me just say the fact that God judges people severely um, needs to be both a comfort and a great fear to all of us in the room. A comfort because no one gets away with anything. Everyone who's wronged you, everything that's bad that's happened in this world, no one's going to get away with anything. But you and I will not get away with anything either. And God is coming as the judge. So, we've looked at the knowledge of Yahweh, the judgment of Yahweh, which leads on to this. We get into the good news now, the mercy of Yahweh. The mercy of Yahweh. So, one of the plagues later in Exodus 8, 22, it says this. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Okay, this is the plague of flies. Put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Israelite now. You're in Egypt. You've been there for 400 years. Things have been bad. Things have been getting worse. The rumors have been going. Things are on the move. And now plagues are breaking out all over the land of Egypt. The, the, you heard the, the, the Nile was turned to water. Oh, my gosh. There's been locusts flying around. There's been gnats. There's been frogs covering people's houses. And now there is swarms of flies. Just imagine like, like just thick black swarms that you can hardly see the sun at points, just swarming around the whole nation of Egypt. And yet, in this one little province where, where all your people are, there's nothing. You can see it. You can almost see like a wall surrounding you, 360 degrees. You can see flies all there, terrorizing the rest of the country, and yet you are safe. Just feel that. Feel that mercy, because it's real. The forces of nature were being wielded by God, 
but he was keeping you safe. And what the Hebrews would have realized there, that this whole thing was not only so that Egypt could know who Yahweh was, but so that they could know who Yahweh was. They see Yahweh's power, they see Yahweh's might on display, but they see Yahweh's heart for his people. The people that he has said yes to and the people that have said yes to him, he will say, you are mine and I will keep you safe. I will keep you safe in the midst of these judgments. I won't remove you from Egypt so you're nowhere near, but you will see the judgments around you and I will preserve you in the midst of them. That's what they see. That's what we need to see right now. And so these nine plagues happen one after another. And the tenth plague, the last God to fall, is, is really Pharaoh himself in many ways. He would have been uh, the chief deity in many ways of the Egyptian people. And we're going to look at that next week when Leanne explores the Passover. But let me deal briefly here with something that comes up in the text and uh, no doubt will arrive in life groups this week, which is this conversation around the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So it's, it's probably one of the prime examples where uh, people have questions around the sovereignty of God. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Here's the deal. I'm going to put together a 10-minute podcast something uh, tomorrow or Tuesday, and hopefully you can listen to it before Wednesday if you would like, if you like that kind of thing. Um, I think it will be cool. But in the, in, in the text here, let me give you the one-minute version. There are 14 instances of Pharaoh's heart getting hard. And it's about an eight-six split. Eight that says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Six that says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And some of them are quite ambiguous. We're not quite sure. It just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Well, who's doing that? And I think there's some intentional mystery here by the author who's not saying it's one or the other because essentially both are true. God is sovereign over anything. He, he will have his will done. Sometimes he will withhold mercy, which is his right to do. But every single person, Pharaoh included, is 100% responsible for their actions and their heart before God. So that's the high-level uh, high thing. I will unpack it more in, a, in, in, in that thing. But you just can't escape. There are two truths, two train tracks that run throughout the Bible. God's sovereignty over everything and human free will and responsibility at the end of the day. Let's move on to the last thing, the servant of Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh. Moses has been a pivotal figure in the book of Exodus and especially in these plagues. And he is both, he's two things, he's both the hand of God's judgment and he's the mediator between God and Pharaoh, God and the people. And so on the one hand, you've got Moses, who is the person who's often asked to um, stretch out his hand or reach out with a staff. Sometimes it is Aaron on behalf of Moses, on behalf of Yahweh. But typically, Moses is the one who executes God's judgment. He does something, and then God acts like he said he would act. He's the, he's the executor of God's will, basically, um, on the one hand. On the other hand, Moses is the one that goes into Pharaoh and pleads on Pharaoh's behalf and brings God's word to Pharaoh. And there's a cycle that happens throughout almost all the plagues. Um, Moses goes in, he warns Pharaoh. Pharaoh resists, so Moses acts, judgment falls. Pharaoh then uh, asks Moses, please, for intervention. So Moses prays to Yahweh and the judgment receives. And that's basically the pattern that goes again and again. And friends, Moses... Moses is just a shadow, a very intentional prefigure 
of Jesus of Nazareth, Yahweh in the flesh. He's a shadow of that. Jesus too, just like Moses, is both the hand of God's judgment, the instrument of God's judgment, and the mediator between God and humankind. That's who Jesus is. And in many ways, when Jesus first came to this earth, he was God incarnate 2,000 years ago. He came as many things to do many things, but in, in a major way, he came as a mediator. He came as a mediator. He went to the cross on our behalf. His blood paid for our sins, for our idolatry, our rebellion against God, our partnership with other spiritual beings. And he took on the wrath of God on our behalf. That was ours to bear. And so in many ways, he was a slain lamb. Leanne's going to unpack that hugely next week. He rose again from the grave. He is now existing as a permanent mediator, um, firstly for his people all the time, because, because we, we, we need, until we're glorified, to have God's face shine upon us as his people. And Jesus does that for us by praying for us consistently. But on the cross also, Jesus, when he went to the cross, didn't just defeat our sin, he defeated the very real spiritual forces of darkness. So Paul in Colossians says that he triumphed over them on the cross and put them to open shame. He put them to open shame because the very real spiritual forces were behind the human beings putting Jesus on the cross and crucifying God and killing him. They thought they were winning, but all they were doing was actually doing exactly what God wanted them to do because that was the way God was going to defeat sin, Satan, and death. And he put them to open shame. And the back of their power has now been broken. They are condemned to death and final wrath and final judgment. They're still on a leash. They're running around. They're trying to pull down as many people with them. But their sentence is final, and there's nothing they can do. There is no mercy coming their way. God has judged the evil spirits. And he stands right now, Jesus, this mediator, and he shouts, like he shouted at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Come and join me. Come and leave the kingdom of darkness. Join the kingdom of light. I have gone to the cross for you. Trust in me that what I did on the cross is enough to pay for your sin, separate you from bondage to Satan, sin, and death, and come and live with me. The invitation is to be like the people of Israel. Be in the land of Goshen. Don't be in the rest of the land of Egypt, partnering with them in their idolatry. Be in the safe land of Egypt. And God's judgments that still come and are revealed today, you'll be kept from them, and you'll be kept from the final judgment when Jesus comes back to wrap up this age. And Jesus is coming back, friends, and that's what he's going to do. He's not coming back as mediator. He is coming back as judge. First time he came as lamb, this time he's going to come as a lion, and he will put to death all of God's enemies, including death itself. And he's saying, don't reject my offer. If you reject my offer, your blood is on your own heads. And Jesus says, I went to the cross on your behalf. I laid down my own life so that you don't have to do it. Please take me at my word and come after me. That's his invitation. But what we have to know, friends, is that day, the day of the Lord it's called, when Jesus comes as judge, the 10 plagues of Egypt will look like child's play. The 10 plagues of Egypt will look like child's play. Just get a glimpse, and there's many other passages we could go to. Just get a glimpse from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He gets a vision of, of that day, and it is a vision. So it's, it's, it's picture imagery, but it's picture imagery of something real. And if the real thing is going to be more stark and more graphic than picture imagery, 
we should take notice. This is what he says. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaved and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, crush us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who can stand? Jesus right now is saying, I've made a way out of judgment. Come hide in me. I don't want that for you. That's upon your own head because of your partnership with evil and your sinful hearts. You have rejected me and there's nothing else I can do but, but do what I need to do to vanquish evil from this world once and for good. Friends, that is the invitation of Jesus. But we don't just end there. The band's gonna come up. We're gonna sing now and you can stand with me. But I wanna say a few things to us in, in, in closing. Um, you can stand in preparation. Um, I wanna say a few things in closing. Um, number one is Christ followers. Let's be people who actually tell the story because this is the message of, of Jesus Christ. If this is true, people need to know about Jesus. People need to know who God is, how great and good he is to have created people to enjoy him. But that sin is real and spiritual evil is real and we've all participated in it in different ways, in multiple ways, but no one stands righteous. And yet God is patient and he warns people. And God brings in small judgments to wake people up. And God is merciful if you would receive his atoning sacrifice on your behalf. And God is coming to wrap up this age. And on the other side of that age, there will be no evil. There'll be those who want to be with Yahweh or not. And for those of us who are with Yahweh and we know Yahweh, and Yahweh is our God and we are his people, take heart, take courage. The battle has been won. Satan's back has been broken the new heaven and the new earth is on its way, and God is more powerful than all the spiritual beings that run around this world, and he's more powerful than your sin and the addictions and the idols that we still get clung to. That is still a thing in our hearts, friends. People of God, we get taken out of slavery, we get taken out of Egypt, but sometimes there's a little bit of Egypt still left in us. But God is, is, is powerful enough to, to work with us and remove that and purge that. And he wants to do that in our lives. He's a strong God. He's mighty to save. And the good work he has begun in you, he will see through to completion. So let's trust this God. Let's turn to this God. If you've never trusted in, in Jesus for salvation, you recognize tonight that you need it, right now, come before God and say, I need what Jesus has done on my behalf. I recognize I've been, I've been partnering with darkness and not with you, Yahweh, the creator God of the world. And I'm a sinner who needs forgiveness for my sin. God will grant that to you. He will grant that to you because he is good, his heart is kind, and he is open-handed saying, come, come. So let's worship this God now, this God who has revealed himself. Let's come and sing praises to him. Let's come and lift up his name. He is strong. He is mighty to save. He is powerful. God, we come before you as your people. 
And we ask right now, God, that by your Spirit, you would come and embolden us. You would put, um, you would, you would put straw in the bricks of our beings, God, to, to reinforce us, that, that we would know that we are your children, that we are loved, that we are under your mercy, that we are under your hand, that you are strong to defeat your enemies, you are strong to melt hearts and bring people to you, and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. God, we thank you that you are high and exalted and that you mediate for us right now. And we worship you for all these things. Let's sing together.